Welcome to Magic the Flavoring, the Magic the Gathering podcast, where we talk about all things magic, flavor design, and lore. I'm your host, Andy Mann, and today I am flying solo. The first time ever. I don't have a guest, I don't have a Nathan, just me. Just me and my microphone. Um, I wasn't going to do an episode this week. I wasn't. I was feeling a little bit detached from magic, I didn't have a guest set up for this particular week coming, and I just thought, ah, like, is there anything new to say? And then I remembered... Scryfall exists, and there is a random card button on Scryfall, and I was kind of bored. So I thought, why not? Let's go for it. Let's just do a random card Scryfall episode. We've done this once before. Uh, Nathan and I just hit that random button, spoke about whatever card came up, the flavour of the card. I think one of them was even an island. We spoke about the flavour of islands for about ten minutes. And uh, yeah, obviously if there are any problematic cards that pop up, I might just edit those out, but then you wouldn't ever know, would you? Uh, But other than that, I'm going to just, whatever card comes up, I'm going to hit that random Scryfall card button, and whatever's there, we will talk about. It's basically just an exercise in the idea that every card in Magic has flavour. Just like how I've been trying to perpetrate this idea that every magic player has a lore story, every card is flavourful, because that is the game and the wondrousness of the cards that we play. So here we go, I'm just going to dive straight into it, not even two minutes in. Let's go. So let's go to scryfall.com. Obviously this is a resource, if you don't know what Scryfall is, uh, it's the most thorough online magic card database. It's absolutely incredible. Um, you can support them financially as well um, on their website. And yeah, I would just suggest if you've never looked at Scryfall as a resource for researching magic cards, or like they have things like you can look up different artists, different. Uh, what's the actual name for it? It's not Vorthos. They haven't used the word Vorthos. It's um, Law Finder, Flavor Text, Artists. So you can type in on the Law Finder uh, on uh, cell, you could type in any character's name or like a place or whatever, and it will go through all of the flavor texts, all of the names on any card in Magic the Gathering, find them for you. It's an incredible thing to use, especially if you're doing like a, a tribal deck or a deck that in EDH that revolves around a certain theme. This is the most amazing uh, resource. There are a few other content creators as well that do random Scryfall cards. Uh, I know Shivan Butt uh, also does this on his Twitter. Uh, so if you like the idea of just having someone just comment on a random card every day, there's lots of people who do it, and I, you know, I do this just for fun. I know that, that sounds kind of sad. <laughs> I do do it just for fun. Every now and then, if I'm really bored, I'll just random card on Scryfall, see what I can find. This is I'm just doing this with the microphone now. Anyway... Cool, great. Uh, let's hit that random card button. First up, we'll do five cards total. First up, here we go. We have Circuit Mender, artifact creature insect. Uh, when Circuit Mender enters the battlefield, you gain two life. And when Circuit Mender leaves the battlefield, you draw a card. Uh, the flavor text reads, inspired by industrious silkworms. Its maker crafted in it to restore the broken pieces of the world. 2-3, illustrated by Hector Ortiz. And it's from Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. This is a really new one. Incredible. Um, I mean, what I really loved about Kamigawa in general, this is something that Kaladesh did too, uh, is the idea of blending that 
nature versus technology world. And it's, this isn't a, like a new concept, right, in high fantasy or sci-fi or whatever. Like, you have games, for example, like out now, you have Horizon uh, Forbidden West and Horizon Zero Dawn. Those games are all about, like, nature and technology kind of coming together. But on, in Magic Cards, I think it's it's most explicit Obviously, in artifact creatures, that's the most like natural place for it to go. But artifact creatures that are explicitly animals that have been like automatons made to look like them. Like, for example, you had Filigree Familiar because that was a little fox in, Cal- in Kaladesh, and obviously Circumender here being an insect in Kamigawa. But the amazing thing about Kamigawa is maybe not this particular card, but the fact that they had the artifact equipments be the creatures as well. Which was an incredible piece of design. I mean, uh, one that just jumps to mind, for example, is the reality chip. It is a jellyfish, you know, and you had, uh, there was one that was a monkey and a snake and all this kind of thing. And I just love this idea that you have these bits of technology throughout the multiverse that even in the parts of, uh, in the planes that are the most technologically advanced, they always go back to nature, right? We're going into uh, Dominaria and the Brothers' War later this year, and obviously we will see mechs and tech and automatons between in the war between uh, Urza and Mishra, um, and some of those are, are incredible pieces of technology in the magic world, and like a far cry from our circuit mender here, in terms of their scope and what they're trying to do, um, but yeah, it, it really exciting. I always love seeing artifact creatures that are indeed creatures. I mean, you get more abstract ones, right? Like, um... Something like a worm coil engine is interesting, but I think it's because it a worm is kind of as in the W U R M is kind of in the fancy realm. Also, things like a Steel Hellkite is a is a like auto automaton dragon, but because they're already fancy creatures, I don't know is that the same. But there we are. Uh, Hector Ortiz as well is uh, a magic artist that I'm pretty familiar with. Um, been illustrating for the game. Uh, in a few different sets now. Uh, only 11 cards, really, which is interesting, because it's definitely a name that I hear pop up, like, quite often. A um, couple of cards in unsets. Uh, some more recent cards as well. Mysterious Limousine, which was one of uh, Sheldon Menry last week on our Flavor Picks episode for uh, New Capenna. That was one of uh, his Flavor Picks there. Um, and yeah, you can definitely see Hector's style is all about those kind of nature shapes in nature into artifacts. If you look at uh, Combine Chrysalis or, and uh, Chrome Courier, which the Hex did for, um, what do you call it? One Horizons 2? There you go. Uh, you can see absolute influences of these things aren't like realistic animals or, you know, but the, the shapes and the kind of style that they're using are definitely uh, insectoid in nature. So yeah, really cool. Love a bit of Circuit Mender. Nice, lowball ones kind of Get into the mood. All right. How long was that? How much time did I waste? A few minutes? Cool. Let's waste a few minutes more. This is only going to be a short episode, by the way. This is I'm literally just booting up the microphone, just going, trying something new. Didn't want to go a week without um, doing something. Might take a week off next week. I'm just now editorializing on air. Okay, random card number two. Here we go. Brothers Yamazaki. Oh, we are really stuck in Kamigawa today. All right, Brothers Yamazaki is a uh, two and a red legendary creature, human samurai, Bushido 1. If there are exactly two permanents named Brothers Yamazaki on the battlefield, the legend rule doesn't apply to them. Each other creature named Brothers Yamazaki gets plus two, plus two in haste. It's a 2-1 art by Ron Spears. 
Oh man, Ron Spears. Now that is a name in magic which you can't get around really. That is just... I mean, the art for Ron Spears is fantastic. I mean, my favourite Ron Spears artwork has to be Acroma Angel of Wrath. Um, the OG art for it. And yeah. Oh. Also, Biorhythm is another one that EDH players might be aware of just because it's a banned card and so that image kind of pops up well. Now there are two Brothers Yamazaki cards. Uh, it's not just the same card that if you have two of it on the battlefield, the legend rule doesn't apply. There are two cards, same function, so same, same, same game piece, I suppose, but the art on them is different. So you have both of the brothers Yamazaki, and obviously for gameplay that doesn't necessarily matter, but it's a really nice little touch. Obviously, both artworks are by Ron Spears. Um, obviously, we've seen this referenced in Neon Dynasty as well, with the cousins Yamazaki, I suppose you could say, um, who are uh, Heiko Yamazaki, the general, and Narika Yamazaki, the poet. They actually have their own side stories done about them as well. Now, they've obviously tweaked it here with the, the newer Yamazakis, uh, because they are not the same game piece, uh, and they don't necessarily play around with the legend rule, but it's a nice little flavour touch. Um, this whole idea is an interesting one in OG Kamigawa about legendary rules not applying to things. You get a lot of that because obviously it's a set about legends and I guess it it kind of needed to happen in gameplay terms because if the majority of your creature cards are legendary then it makes it very hard to gain any sort of board state if you're playing in limited or in standard. Um, but these cards specifically, the Brothers Yamazaki, really use that non-legendary rule to its advantage. Obviously this is slightly earlier magic where... Uh, legendary creatures themselves weren't necessarily as prominent game pieces or even narrative storytelling devices. And so to have a bold swing, to have the same functional game piece act in a way where there are multiples of that one legendary and having that rule that you can take away the legendary rule so you can play both of them and have this kind of bolstering of each other and then to give those two different artworks to the same game piece which they did quite a lot in um in earlier magic sets as well but for this exact sort of uh example is just it's just so much fun i kind of wish they did more of this there was a, a card in um new capenna which was the oh gosh i can't remember the name of it it's the knuckle dusters the equipment that's the knuckle dusters and it creates a token that's just another copy of those knuckle dusters, right? Because then you get one on each hand. And uh, I can't actually remember, did they get a token? That is interesting. No, I don't think they did get a token. So there you go. So <laughs> a set that's all the way along from OG Kamigawa, and they're actually not doing as much with the having two versions of the same game piece on the deck. There we go. I don't know. It, it was a nice little touch. Brothers Yamazaki are not great cards, but because of the way they function, they're instantly recognisable in the game. Um, and I kind of wish we would see more of it. But there we go. That's just me. All right, moving on. Let's do a, another random card. Royal Assassin. Creature, human assassin, one black black, tap to destroy, target target tapped creature. Trained in the arts of stealth, royal assassins choose their victims carefully, relying on timing and precision rather than brute force, one one. And this is actually the Junior Series Europe uh, promo 
with the art by oh god I'm going to butcher this name uh, Tom Vernestrad, uh which is not the sort of classic uh, Mark Zug art that I think most people would be aware of uh, or indeed the there's another um, Tom Vernestrad that's actually the OG artwork for uh, Royal Assassin this one is very much more similar to that one than to the Mark Zug one. I think it's the the same sort of uh, model, if you like, for the the Assassin. Um, but yeah, I love Royal Assassin. I used to run um, a 60-card kitchen table deck, which was all tappy uh, Assassin cards. It was in Demir. So you had this, you had uh, oh Agent of Fates. And then I used to run that with like hidden strings as well. So you would attack him with, uh, you would attack with Agent of Fates, uh, play hidden strings, target the Agent of Fates to do all the tap, tap on tap shenanigans because it had heroic and it would destroy a tap target creature, I think it was. Uh, no, that was Royal Assassin. Um, but you could control the board state by having all these kind of very similar, slightly like Demiri effects of having things that are tapped die. And that was the direction they went in a lot with Assassins. And I don't think that's what anything they've kept up. And I don't know why. I've I've really wanted to have uh, a tappy Assassins Dimir EDH deck because I really loved that 60-card deck. And then you could use the Hidden Strings tech, right? But they seem definitely to have gone more down the, the clone route for Assassins. Um, or like Ninjas, for example. Ninjutsu obviously being their sort of primary mechanic seems to be definitely more the thing that they want to do sort of like sneaky surprise plays rather than tapping down your creatures and, and destroying them um which is a bit of a shame i've actually never seen this promo artwork before which is kind of wild it's really cool i like it a lot um yuriko uh, not yuriko uh kiku the knight's flower which is another Kamikawa card, is uh, another really good example of like uh, an assassin card, which I wish, I kind of wish they did something like a more of a reference to it uh, in the newer Kamigawa set. Uh, Kiku Knight's Flower is black black for a human assassin. You uh, can pay two and two black to tap Kiku and then target creature deals damage to itself equal to its power. So it's like these assassins have like their one, the tapping sort of uh, mechanic really has this, like, they have their one shot to kill the creature, because then it leaves you open, right, as the the player, if you tap all your assassin creatures down, and they don't quite do what they're meant to do, like, the opponent plays an instructable spell, or some kind of interrupt, uh, obviously then you're wide open <laughs> to have the crack back, which again is is exactly what Royal Assassin is doing here, um, and also a, a three uh, mana cost creature, 1-1, one, one. Um, yeah, it's not going to be blocking any time soon either. So yeah, I really love the Royal Assassin. It's, it is a classic magic card for a reason. I have to say I maybe prefer the Mark Zug artwork, but that's just me. I'm a little bit biased. Um, but yeah, there we go. Trained Assassin. We're burning through these. I might do more than five. I might only, I'll only... This won't be a long episode. Next up, we are stuck in Kamigawa. I'm listeners. I'm sorry. This is not my intention. We have Sakashima, the imposter, the original Sakashima uh, from Saviors of Kamigawa. Uh, Sakashima, the imposter, is two blue blue for a legendary creature, human rogue. You may have Sakashima, the imposter, enter the battlefield as a copy of any target creature on the battlefield, except its name is Sakashima, the imposter. It's le it's legendary in addition to its other types and has two blue blue. Return this creature to its owner's hand at the beginning of the next end step. Three one, 
this illustration by RK Post. The amazing RK Post. I love this artwork, by the way. I know this is an audio podcast. You probably can't visualize it perfectly, but if you're you're on your phone, you can, you know, watch watch along. You know what I mean. I mean, this is just the clone of all clones, right? The idea that you can bounce it back to your hand is really interesting. I really like that, especially for uh, Sakashima specifically, because Sakashima has all the different masks that let it kind of morph and disguise themselves into other people. So the fact that it can return uh, to your hand and then you can play it out again is them changing the mask over, which is really nice and clean, usually in clone decks. I have a, an Actress Oracle Half-Truths deck that isn't a pure clones deck, but does run a lot of clones as part of the inherent synergies of what I'm doing with that deck. And the, the trick is always... How do I upgrade this clone? <laughs> if I play turn three, turn four clones and no one else has anything good, I'm like, well, I still want the value. And maybe, like, you know, if it's like a solemn simulacrum that I'm copying or whatever, then I can get the the value out of it. But then how do I reuse these guys? And it's always the trick is that, you know, to flicker or blink them or whatever. But Sakashima is such a master clone that they can do it themselves which I think, or they have the inherent ability themselves to change up what they're doing. Clones in Magic in terms of, or shapeshifters in Magic, are also the most interesting characters I find, which is ironic, because I personally do not like uh, changelings and shapeshifters as a creature type. <laughs> Obviously this is a human rogue, and the effect is a clone effect, right? But the most explicit shapeshifters in the game I tend to actually not like as a broad creature type however characters such as Sakashima or uh, Lazav who's the uh, mastermind of the Demir these characters always seem to have the most kind of uh, unexpected story arcs or the kind of stories and the, the flavour behind them that is the most intriguing simply because they're so mysterious and I'd love to see more of them or at least the the cloning the clones that we have having a much more uh prominent role in what's going on imagine lazar if he was a planeswalker that'd be absolutely wild like the the kind of chaos that they could ensue because of that right um and yeah i love the fact that it's also like a real blue effect as well it just fits so cleanly into the idea of like illusion but not just illusion in terms of like the facade but also in terms of warping the reality of those around you right because you're not just changing your face you also have to convince that person like their their perception of reality is completely flipped because they assume that they're talking to one person when they're actually talking to another um and so blue for shapeshifters i just don't think it's ever i've ever stated it or nathan's ever stated it on this podcast is just absolutely perfect um black would be maybe another one depending on the flavor of how it's done i think that'd be quite interesting um hence why i guess a lot of clones are blue black um but there we go rk post as well i we've spoken about rk post on this podcast many a time just such a prolific artist in the game and so like singular in style as well like you'd always tell an rk post piece i've been, I've been doing it for so long as well i think i remember talking on this show about uh rk's uh angels lightning angel was one of the very first rares that i ever owned as a magic card i actually have a signed copy as well because I, I saw rk post at Magic Vest London, pre-pandemic. Um, also have a signed Phyrexian Rec Reclamation as well, which I really treasure. But just the style that 
Arcade Post brings to the game is is incredible. And also the kind of thing that we're going to be seeing like again this year, this kind of uh, tech punk. I was about to say cyberpunk. It's not quite cyberpunk, but like tech punk aesthetic to high fantasy. Um, even in Sakashima, obviously it's it's high fantasy uh, Japan, but it still has like a real kind of like you wouldn't. This wouldn't be an out of place character in some kind of post apocalyptic wasteland aesthetic as well, which I think is just a, like is a testament to the artist. Also, you get like really weird ones from Arcade Post, like Simic Sky Swallower. <laughs> Which you just look at and go, obviously that is their artwork, but wow, that's just so wild and different. Um, yeah, I could do a whole hour just talking about Arcade Post. I won't, though. In fact, let's move on. Now, Sakashima the Imposter. Love it. Next card up. Crib Swap. Two and a th- uh, white for a tribal instant shapeshifter. Scryfall is listening into this conversation. Uh... Changeling, this card has every creature type at all times. Exile target creature, its controller puts a 1-1 colors shapeshifter creature token with Changeling onto the battlefield. Uh, and the artwork is by Brandon Dorman. This card is bizarre. It is absolutely bizarre. The artwork shows uh, a crib with a <laughs> child in it with snake eyes and green skin grinning at a very concerned-looking uh, parent. I, I was, there's, it's kind of hard to tell for scale. I think this is like a, a, a halfling. I could be wrong. I mean, it's from Lorwem, so it's actually probably a Kithkin, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's definitely a Kithkin. Um, yeah, this card is just very strange. The fact that you have tribal instants is an interesting concept in Magic Flavorfully that I don't think we've seen uh, for a very long time. In fact, I am going to look it up. The idea that spells could have uh, tribal um, loyalties is kind of a real wild one. That makes perfect sense in a microcosm, but the more you pick at it (laughs) from a function point of view, the more you think, well, why doesn't literally every spell have some kind of tribal affinity and then you start to get into the layers of well if that was the case then 99% of all spells and magic that aren't creatures would be wizard tribal right or shaman tribal um so yes it's it's i think it's a it's an incredible thing that they tried in the sense that they tried it in but i don't know if it can be something they bring back i hear people all the time saying how they should bring it back and how it it should be more of a thing um i just don't see how when we're trying to make sets a bit more coherent across standard or when we're trying to do things that are way more specific bringing this kind of tribal sorcery in would just open up a whole can of worms um i mean yeah pretty much just across lawwin and uh worldwake i'm going to say because they're Eldrazi. Uh, Rise of the Eldrazi. So Eldrazi Conscription, for example, is another tribal enchantment. Because it's specific to do with... The effect of it is specific to the Eldrazi. In like a really direct, flavorful way. Great, obviously, if you're playing uh, effects that rely on the tribes that you're playing. Or have like cost reductions because of it. Like That is actually really quite interesting. Um, I kind of wish... Obviously, this is just my bias. They should have done it for werewolves and vampires in the latest Innistrad set. No, just two tribes. You could have just you could have just done it for those two tribes, and then that would have given both tribes the support they would have needed to really like face off against each other um, in the storyline. 
Although they didn't really face off against each other in the storyline, which is kind of a missed opportunity. Hmm. Okay. All right. Um, I'm happy that tribal spells don't necessarily exist in magic anymore. Uh, but yes. Also, tribal shapeshifter. Really? Just makes me dislike shapeshifters even more. If they're all tribes, why are they getting tribal stuff? Hmm. Anyway, moving on. Random card. Gift of Growth. One and a green instant. And with Kicker 2, untapped target creature, it gets plus 2 plus till until end of turn. If this spell was kicked, that creature gets plus 4 plus 4 uh, until end of turn instead. Uh, illustrated by YW Tang. Excellent. Classic example of green growth spells. Uh, this is from Dominaria, by the way. Um... The long-standing tradition of having green growth spells depicting a giant version of a creature. <laughs> you see it on things like, you know, titanic growth or uh, classification, etc. Is one that I'm so happy we have in Magic. Because it, it brings it's both terrifying and whimsical at the same time. It's a perfect encapsulation of what green is and what green does. And so often it allows for like just glorious high fantasy paintings that you wouldn't necessarily get in any other uh, effect in magic like things getting literally bigger is not something you see really in any other color for example uh, even with other colors having like pseudo pump effects um gift of growth depicts a i'm going to say it's a stag uh, obviously a high fantasy stag uh bursting giant out of a a line of trees into a into a plane um yeah it's it's one of those kinds of things that especially if you're playing kitchen uh table ma uh, magic like giant growth and titanic growth and all those cards are definitely the kind of like the first cards that you really learn how the game works for things like pump effects um especially if they're at instant speed but even sorceries for example you know to play the sorcery before you attack the thing gets bigger blah 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 and that flavor of that being what green does really sits with players. I think for me when I first started playing, if I had to run through like the five colours of like what do these things do, it was haste for red. Hasty red things go fast now. Uh black was definitely uh things like ping effects. Uh, even though they were mixed with white a little, because I played a lot during Ravnica, so like the extort mechanic, for example, like uh throw parasite. Yeah, or a parasite throw. Uh whatever. Um or like, you know, like vampires in black as well were a big one. So like lifelink was a big thing as well. First strike for white. I don't know why that's the one that sits for me. Uh, blue was counter magic, <laughs> generally speaking. I played a lot with Nathan's correct, uh, collection. There were definitely a lot of counter spells going around. And uh, for green, it was trample and growth effects. And I do, like, there's a lot of chat at the moment about uh, in New Capenna, a lot of the green cards uh, have treasure synergies, um, especially in the Riveters, Riveteers, Jund kind of flavoured uh, cards. And as much as I'm not hugely upset about them, because they are in a set that is very treasure-centric, it is tricky for players of a certain generation to think of Green doing things like that when this idea of kind of like, you know, bombastic growth is exactly what we wanted. Like, making artifacts and making wealth and treasure isn't kind of the same deal as, boof, like, your deer is now 50 feet high. 
Um, so I understand that completely. I'm not hugely against it. I don't really have an opinion. But if that was, if I did have an opinion, that would be it. Um, yeah, really nice. It's one of those magic cards that just really gets me like really nostalgic for sitting at a kitchen table with my friends for hours and hours and hours uh, playing crappy little sixty card decks that we just pull out of a box and throw together. It was um, it was a return. Was it Return to Ravnica or a Dragon's Maze box? I think it was a Return to Ravnica box that uh, Nathan and a friend of ours at the time, uh, oh, he's still a friend, um, but we used to live with him, uh, AJ, they bought a booster box of Return to Ravnica, and they merged that with a bunch of other boosters, like random boosters that they bought from like the nearby sets. This is before I was buying my magic cards. I was, you know, uh, stealing off of them. Um, and... Then Nathan's just kind of back catalogue of collection. Then AJ had a bit of a collection. It was all this mishmash of cards that was majoritively sort of 2012 era standard. Um, and just a whole bunch of other stuff. And you're just throwing together <laughs> 60 card decks. No sleeves. Playmats, because we're not heathens. But, you know, decks held together with rubber bands. Like, you know, oh, don't take that, like, Daggerdrome Imp, because I'm going to use that for the, the black-white life gain deck that I'm going to do tomorrow, and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, yeah. Even though this is a card from Dominaria, the effect is enough to really bring you back to those times. And it's something to be said for returning mechanics in Magic. This is a wild tangent now. This is far off this card. But there's a whole... There are voices of saying, like, you know, some effects in Magic just need to be kind of phased out, or they've done this card, or, you know, whatever else. And I just sort of think there is a real value to having variations on a theme that sits outside just the functionality of like a healthy standard or a healthy limited environment. And that is that recurring themes do have uh, a comforting effect on you. If you if you know you like want to play in a certain style or if you want to emulate a time of your sort of magic playing career, you can go back to certain styles that are present in newer sets. And although it's really super exciting to see some of the play design stuff that they've been doing over the past few sets, especially with things like Legendary Creatures, Nuka Penner has just gone ham with the idea of like what legendary creatures can do and the kinds of effects, singular effects they have. There is also something to be said for the kind of workhorses of magic card design, and Gift of Growth is is part of that legacy. Cool. Getting teary eyed over a green pump spell. Yeah. Should we do one more? This is going to be. Super fast episode. Let's do one more. Bloodthirsty Adversary. One and a red for a creature vampire. Haste. Uh, when Bloodthirsty Adversary enters the battlefield, you may pay two and a red. Any number of times. Uh, when you pay this cost one or more times, put that many 1-1 counters on Bloodthirsty Adversary, then exile up to that many target instant and or sorcery cards with mana value three or less from your graveyard and copy them. You may cast any number of the copies without paying their mana costs. 2-2. Two, two. Uh, oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, the illustration is by Hyun Hua Cho. I'm so sorry for butchering that name. I do apologize. Um, this is from Midnight Hunt. One of the better vampire cards was in Midnight Hunt, as well as very many of the better werewolf cards were in Crimson Vow, but whatever, I'm not going to be talking about that now. Uh, this is at Mythic Rare as well, hence why there is a wall of text on this card. Also, it's got haste. Red card's got haste, what did I just say? 
Red's got to go fast. Um, who's going to listen to this episode? My gosh. Um, Bloodthirsty Adversary uh, is a really nice uh, sort of legacy of the vampires on Innistrad using one-handed crossbows. I know that's like, if that's the flavour I'm picking out of this card, is kind of wild. Um, but you had, uh, was it Falconrath Executioner? Yeah, no, Falconrath Exterminator, I do apologise, from uh, Avacyn Restored, was another red vampire card that had one-handed crossbows. And interestingly, uh, dual welding. Interestingly, both of these cards also play around with 1-1 counters as well, um, which is, I think, a really nice like little callback. Like, who decided that, that <laughs> if you're using mini crossbows as part of your like vampire-like artillery, then that's the... That's the gimmick is plus one one counters. I think it's 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 really cool. Also, a really nice um way to get archers, the creature type archers, into uh red. I mean, funnily enough, Bloodthirsty Adversary isn't an archer, but uh Falcon Wrath Exterminator is. So maybe actually that's something that they've changed uh in the sort of intervening time between the two Innistrad sets. Or I should say between the first and the latest Innistrad set. Um but Falcon Wrath Exterminator, at least from Abyssin Restored, was a nice way to get red archers into the game. Because this idea that, like, it's quick, it's reload, it's fast, it's like, you know, smash, smash, smash. Um, yeah, really nice idea. Rather than the kind of more considered archers in green and white, maybe. Um, Himwa Cho uh, is an illustrator that's done, like, around 43 cards of the game. Um, really nice artwork as well this is a name that doesn't pop up in like sort of my mind's eye of artists very often uh however they have done quite a few cards and quite a few cards as well that have uh sort of legacy with other ones like nighthawk scavenger in uh zendikar rising which is obviously a play on vampire nighthawk um skewer the critics is another great piece by them as well which was uh on that standard for uh ravnica allegiance was one of the better cards that I had several copies of. Um, you'll notice a lot of the uh, artworks of figures by this artist as well have like really broad movement. There's a lot of like arms outstretched in almost every single one of the artworks. So that's clearly something that they like really enjoy. I mean, if you yeah, if you go to their Scryfall page and just go down like Assassins Inc., uh, Katsumasa the Animator, Oran Skyclave Hierophant, Nighthawk Scavenger, Maniacal Rage, Rayu Storm's Edge, Riona Fire Dancer, Siani Eye of the Storm. <laughs> I mean, I could keep going. Steal the Critics, to Fairy Who Slows Time, Time Wipe, um, Thalissi Reverent Medium. Uh, Renan Seven, Volrath Shapeshifter, and Zariel Archduke of Vernus all have the same sort of pose going on. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's the kind of thing that I suppose you could look at an artist and go, I'm just doing the same thing over and over again. But it's clear that this is a style that is perfect just for a magic card frame and really gives a lot of these characters, like, Movement where otherwise they might not have any. I mean, obviously something like Riona Fire Dancer is a card that inherently sort of suggests movement. But if you're looking at, like, Katsumasa the Animator, how are you going to make that card interesting? There are other characters that are similar to Katsumasa. For example, um, Sai, Master Thopterist. That if you had similar sort of feels of a character every single card art, it would just kind of get boring. So I like it when artists find their niche. It's like Kiran Yana. Every card Kiran Yana illustrates is a character sitting down in a glorious chair looking regal, and I'm not even mad about it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I say every 
every character. Not every character, but I mean, Prime Speaker Vanifar, Queen Marchesa, Professor Onyx. I think uh, Kenrith, the Returned King, is also another one of Kieran Yanis. Xanathar, Guild Kingpin. All these cre- all these characters that are sat like nice and regally in a chair. All of them Kieran Yanis. So yeah, Bloodthirsty Adversary. I don't necessarily know why this card also interacts with instants and sorceries. Especially copying them from the graveyard. It's part of that adversary cycle, right? So this is one of the um, cards in that set where you had uh, Intrepid Adversary, Bloodthirsty Adversary, Primal, Spectral, and Tainted. And I guess they all did something kind of interesting. They all did something kind of interesting with counters, which is kind of a nice tie-in as well. Um, And they all had this kind of, you know, the amount of times that you pay for something, something happens. But, yeah, with Bloodthirsty Adversary, this was actually one of Nathan's flavor picks from this set. I don't quite know where it does the instant sorceries thing. But, you know, whatever. Not all flavor can be apparent or accurate. Um, But, yeah. There we go. I don't really know why I recorded this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know what you thought of me doing solo, whether the ramblings are just ramblings, or whether uh, you actually think these are worthwhile to do. Or don't. Maybe I'd rather not know. Um, If you have any cards that you want to get my opinion on the flavour of, then hit me up at mtflavouring. Emails go to mtflavouring at gmail.com also. Uh, And yeah, I've kind of enjoyed this. I really enjoy just booting up the the laptop and hitting random and just going. Uh, So, I hope to see you next time. All that remains for me to say is thank you so much for listening. This has been Magic the Flavouring.